Hello. Hello, John Roderick. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you doing? I am doing well. What are you doing? What are you up to today? Um, let's see. My mom just texted me and said that she wants me to drive my truck over where she is at a salvage yard buying used brick by the <laughs> truckload. This is a thing that she periodically does. She says, are you driving the truck today? And I go, oh boy, yes. And she says, great. Will you come meet me at the salvage yard in Ballard and help me schlep something? How far is Ballard from where you are? Oh, not that far. Okay. It's just on the other side of town. But but she'll go through phases where she goes to the salvage yards. There are about four in Seattle, four good ones. And she'll walk around and she'll find some salvaged material and decide that she needs that for her house. And then it's on me to load it and travel it and unload it. She's very, very strong and resourceful. Once I unload it, I never have to touch it again. She'll move it all around her property. But I do have to, you know, like loading brick is not Ugh. the funnest way to spend a day. What makes for a good salvage yard? Uh, interesting. Well, you know, the salvage yards recognize... Is this different from a junkyard? Because I've been to junkyards where you, you, you know, like a, like car junkyards. Yeah, it's different. Uh, when they started properly, I mean, you know, I think back in the 60s when they were tearing down old Victorian houses, they just tore them down and threw all that stuff in the garbage. Um, but then at a certain point when restoration of old houses became fashionable, they're still tearing them down at a rapid rate, but people n noticed that if you took the leaded glass windows and the old brass lighting fixtures that you could resell those to people who were putting them in their restored homes. Right. And then as time went on and we realized that, uh, old growth beams and natural, you know, an original fur floors or Oak floors and, and all the, all the period details were also, also had value. Then these salvage places started popping up where right. you go in and you find an old fashioned kitchen that's been torn out. You find old appliances, old, I mean, you know, some of my favorites, like favorite places will have the wood floors from bowling alleys or old basketball courts. Sometimes they will salvage stuff from old schools. Like for instance, I went to one one time. And they had these giant, you know, those giant roller maps that used to be in the front of classrooms. Oh, yeah. We pull down the map of America. Then you pull down the map of Asia. Right. Those are great. Yeah. So I found one of those that had five different maps and it had a little sign on it that said that it was from the elementary school where I went to school. No way. Uh, when I was a little kid. And so I bought it and then I was like, what? you know, they must be restoring or refurbishing that elementary school. And then I was up there the other day and they have torn it completely down. Wow. They tore down my old school and now it's just a giant park, which is nice. But right. uh, so I, I bought this old map from my old school and it's all I have of it. But, you know, my mom's, my mom and I, when we were restoring her house, we found a lot of stuff in those salvage yards. 
But now she's laying brick all around her yard, brick paths. And if you put down new brick, it just looks shitty. It looks new. So they're it's tearing got a, yeah, it doesn't have any character. Like it's got to look there. There, are, there is this trend here in Austin. I don't know when I'm going to guess it was like early nineties, maybe to make, you know, use bricks to make houses. And, mm-hmm. and it's, I remember that in North Carolina, they had that a lot and we missed that in Florida. That never really happened there in any of the neighborhoods I ever was in or lived in. Right. Uh, but that just looks strange to me. You see something with like brand new brick and, but it's a house. Yeah. Like that looks, doesn't look right. No, because the new bricks aren't the same as the old bricks. They're yeah. not the same dimensions and they're not as, they're not made the same way, but also old bricks usually have kind of been painted and then maybe cleaned up and they're, they're chipped and weathered. So she's buying and, you know, and they come at a premium, but she's buying these things to lay in her garden and make the path look sort of original to the house or at least, you know, old. And, uh, and I support her. I support her in whatever she does. Uh, She has been a great supporter of me my whole life. So obviously now whatever she wants, I do. And I almost do it without complaint. (laughs) She's not asking you to do anything really unreasonable. No, I would be very surprised if she came up with an unreasonable. Oh, well, wait a minute. No, she does ask me to do unreasonable things because she periodically will decide that what she's going to do is split up her old house into four different apartments (laughs) and rent them to four different local scumbags and then she's going to turn the basement into an apartment for herself Uh, and what she wants me to do is sign off on that plan oh yeah uh she doesn't really i mean of course like was she specifying that it be scumbags or was that what you imagined would move in no she would i'm sure she thought that it would be all (laughs) young women who were working their way through nursing school (laughs) right but You know, I mean, she also, my mom also likes to rescue people who Uh, are falling on hard times. So at least one of the apartments would probably be rented for free. But there's nothing I object to more than an old, you know, an old, uh, in this case, um, neo-colonial home Mm -hmm. being turned into apartments by erecting false walls in the stairwell. And (laughs) I just don't like it. It's like... If you wanted to run an apartment house, you should have bought an apartment house back when we could have afforded one. All right. You bought a single family home and it is a home. And if you want to, I think you should rent. If she wants to rent it and live in a one bedroom apartment, which she sometimes talks about, rent a one bedroom apartment and rent the whole house to some, somebody who wants to buy or wants to live in a four bedroom house. But so anyway, she wants me to sign off on that. And then if I did sign off on it, of course I would be, pressed into service doing the conversion. Oh, right. But I, but I refuse to sign off on it. So she comes to me with this elaborate plan and she's drawn all the drawings and she has it all worked out and particularly the justification for it worked out. And then I say, no, I refuse to allow you to do this. And then she fights me and, and uh, then she forgets about it for a while and I don't bring it up. And then we have to go through it all again nine months later. But so far, I've kept it. I've kept the house stock. Are you pretty competent at like that kind of work? Like um, 
putting in walls or, you know, I guess amateur carpentry or what, what would you call that? Yeah, I would call it amateur carpentry. And, you know, the like if you if I said, look, we got this room, it's 20 by 20. We want to make two rooms out of it and we want to put in an extra door here. Like, is that something you'd be like, well, yeah, I can help you find the right contractor to do it. Or is that like I could do that this weekend if I have the materials? Uh, if I had the material and the motivation, I could do it. Yeah. But, you know, part of the problem with that stuff is that, I mean, there are hack carpenters. And in general, my feeling about hack carpenters is what makes them hacks is that they only measure one time. They measure it and then they cut it. And then if it's, you know, if it's half an inch or a quarter of an inch too short, they just put it in there mm. and they try and make it work by putting in extra nails or screws. And then the whole thing is just, you know, it, it, it can't be made square and it is just shabby. Um, but I am someone who measures meticulously three times I measure and I always cut. I always make my cuts so that it's just slightly bigger slightly longer than it needs to be. And then I go try and fit it and I get a real sense of what it, you know, how much needs to come off. And then I do a little micro might just shave a little bit mm. because I don't like to have it cut wrong. So, I, you know, I'm too meticulous is the problem. If I were working as a carpenter, I would still be working on my little project at the end of the day. And the, and the boss would come over and say, what the fuck? You've been working on this all day. And I would say, I know, but look, it's perfect. And he'd be like, we don't have time to make it perfect. We're trying to make money. But for home carpentry, where I have a lot of time and can afford to be over detailed, it's, uh, I, I enjoy it a lot. It's a lot of fun. Did you like? Were you taught that? No. Or you just figured it out? Yeah, my my dad didn't know a Phillips head from a flathead, but um, my mom is a do-it-yourselfer, mm -hmm. and she passed on that spirit to me. So I learned by doing it wrong for a long time. Did I ever type? I I I installed all the the wiring in a. I converted an old warehouse into a living space back in the nineties with a friend of mine <laughs> and we refinished the floor and we built lofts and little rooms in the, in the space. But then it was time to put electricity in. Right. And so I decided I can do this and I bought, you know, a conduit and a pipe bender and big, big reels of, of wire and, electrical boxes and outlets and, and light fixtures. And I proceeded to spend quite a while stringing all this stuff and, you know, and learning to use all the wiring equipment and the thing about wiring that people don't realize is that it just beats the shit out of your hands. Really? It's just hard work and it, and it's, it's uh, it just kind of, it's a lot harder to do, like physically harder to do than you might think. That wire doesn't bend easily and if they use these, you know, you're using pliers a lot and you're just, it just hurt. You just hurt 
doing it. But I wired this entire place and then got my friends all there. And it was like for the big debut, here we are. And I flipped the breaker switch and it just started send. It just was like fireworks. Everything oh exploded. God. Big, huge, like pow, pow. Oh my God. Just flames, you know, like big, uh, really big, huge electrical. What had you done? I had just done it wrong. I, had, <laughs> I, I didn't, didn't quite understand. You know, you're, you're thinking about the way the electricity flows. Right. And, you know, and somewhere along the line, I kind of got it backwards or, or didn't under, didn't quite understand what I was doing. So I flipped, turned the breaker off. I told all my friends to go away, like, all right, go away. And then I, then I went and I looked at everything I had done and I thought it all through again and realized what I had done and redid it. And, uh, and then it worked, and as far as I know, it still is the power for that building. It's It's been owned by a couple of different friends, and and now it's being used by... That space has been turned into an art gallery or something. But as far as I can tell, their, their power is the power I put in. Wow. So, but that was a, that was a dramatic experience when that... That would kind of turn me off to it. Yeah, just fireworks everywhere. (laughs) The one, you know, I'll do minor plumbing too. Like I do a little bit of plumbing, but I, but you know, plumbing kind of scares me a little bit. See, I'm the other way around. The plumbing thing doesn't really make me that nervous, but electricity and like plumbing probably won't kill you. Yeah. You know, like if you do it wrong, you might get a leak or something, but unless you're messing with like a fire hydrant, you're not going to, I'm going to be hurt that badly. Yeah, it's the leaks that worry me because, because you know the <laughs> leaks happen inside walls and leaks cause leaks cause slow but lasting damage. Whereas if your right. electrical is wrong, you are going to know it. Oh yeah, and um, and then you can kind of trace it back and be like, oh right, <laughs> right, that's not where that goes. I feel but, I feel like what's dangerous with electricity is. Most of what you would need to do electrical work, you can get very inexpensively at Home Depot. But, you know, the kind of work you need to do, like if you want to do plumbing, like you need a lot of special tools that have like, you know, special bits and other things that are expensive. And that's makes it kind of prohibitive to just go and do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of shabby electrical work. And in particular, like if you had a knob and tube house and then somebody came in and just wired some. A, no, a knob and tube house. A knob and tube house. What is, you, what is, is that a Seattle thing? No, no, no. Knob and tube <laughs> is an old style of wiring. The wiring that they used in early days. Like my house, my mom's house was built in 1902 and it was actually plumbed for gas lighting. Wow. So when we took the walls down, we found all this plumbing that was like, what the hell is this? We realized it was natural gas because the house was built just at a time when the, when electricity was kind of rolling out uh, in houses and it had, it had, it had natural gas lights. Uh, But knob and tube was the first electricity or the, you know, early electricity. And it was, it was that, fabric covered wire wrapped around 
porcelain knobs kind of run like old-fashioned power lines. And the porcelain knobs were the insulators. And then this this uh, old-fashioned fabric-covered wire running all over the house. And if you're going to, if you encounter knob and tube wiring, you want to just leave it alone. And if it, and it, cause it works fine, but you just need to leave it alone. If you want to add new electrical stuff to knob and tube wiring, it's almost better that you replace all the wiring because the, because the way you burn your house down is you inexpertly add modern wiring to knob and tube wiring. Mm. And if you do a poor job, you're that's where you're, that's where you, you start a fire. But, um, but you know, if you are just working with home Depot wiring, I, the number one problem I find with, with, uh, with hack electricians is that uh, they don't ground stuff properly. So you've got a lot of ungrounded outlets and that is just, that's just bad form. Yeah. Um, also the other thing is you don't use, you don't use switches that are rated for the, for the power you're using. So, you know, you see people put canned lighting in their kitchen and there's 10 light bulbs and they put a hundred watt light bulbs in all 10 in all 10 cans. And then they put a switch on the wall that can't handle that load. And so the switch gets hot. That's another way you burn your house down. Anyway, this is a, yeah, I, we could do a, we could do a home improvement podcast, but I think uh, we should. Yeah, we should do. Right. And like things like drywall and, and, uh, hanging doors. Like I love to hang a door because again, that meticulousness really comes into play and you're like, all the shimming and all the, all the framing. Like I do not want to hang a door where any of the, where, where there's any unevenness at all. Because if I'm sitting in a space and I look at a door, I can really, I can feel the lack of square. And there's a doorway in my house where the doorway itself is just not square. It's totally a trapezoid. And I wanted to hang a door in that space and found a door and had to plane. Yeah. You had to cut the door and to plane it. You know, the door was the right size. It just was, the door was too square. And so I had to plane it so that it fit this trapezoidal doorway. And Oh my God, I worked on that for a long time and it just filled me with joy because I would put it in its space. I would actually hang the door and I'd look at it and I'd be like, Nope. Nope. It just needs a little bit more, sh- you know, and then I would work on it with a little plain little sandpaper and I finally got it so that I I feel like it it represents well, it swings easily. It's, you know. <laughs> Another thing I hate is when people install wall-to-wall carpeting and then they cut 2 inches out of the bottom of all their doors. So they swing easily over the carpet. Right, right. Well, what else? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to not install wall-to-wall carpet. Well, yeah. I can, supposed to go, go fuck yourself. Go along with that. Um, but that happened a lot, I think, in the 60s and 70s. People 
installed carpet in all these old homes. Right. They cut the bottoms out of their doors. And then, of course, when we were restoring all these old places, we pulled the carpet out. Look, there's good wood under here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. Beautiful floors. Refinish the floor. And then all of a sudden you notice all of your closet doors are hovering over the ground. That explains a lot about my first house now that I, now that I think about it. Yeah. I, I just, I, I hate the feeling of not, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not, I mean, I have a new car as opposed to a car from the 1970s, but I like the 1970s and 80s cars better because I, you, I could do pretty much anything I needed to do on them on my own. You know, I'm not saying I would try to like rebuild the engine or change the transmission, but anything, anything from like servicing the brakes on up, it was really not a big deal to do. And I always enjoyed that. I enjoyed that kind of thing. You know, I would enjoy that whether, you know, once every few months doing an oil change and replacing all the filters and cleaning the things and, you know, it saved money, but it was something I, I enjoyed. I never minded getting my hands dirty, doing that kind of work. And I know how to do most, I know how to repair most basic that I still stay away from the electrical stuff as much as I can. Anything more like than switching out a, a a switch play or, you know, doing like putting in a new light switch or something or a yeah. ceiling fan. It's like, I don't, I don't want to mess with the electrical, but pretty much anything else around the house I can, I can do if it's a basic repair. But nowadays I find I just, I don't have like the right tools and I don't have the right time to do it. But that bothers me like that on a fundamental level, like people, if you're, li- if you're like a homeowner and you don't know how to do like basic stuff, I remember a buddy of mine was, he was selling his house. And he was saying, oh, man, you know, we're going to have to hire someone to do some repairs. I'm like, well, what kind of repairs? He's like, oh, like, oh, someone's going to have to come in and, like, regrout this tub, you know, because, like, the grout's, you know, got this dark color. I'm like, that's like, you could do that. You could do that. Uh You know, uh like, that's not a big, that's not a big repair. He's like, no, no, no. Hum, hum, hum. I, right, I, I don't know how to do that kind of thing. and Yeah, sure, you just pay somebody. To do right, and so there's like these, there's like this basic level. Of, like I remember the first time that I uh, ripped out an old toilet and put a new one in. I was shocked at how easy and straightforward mm-hmm. that was. And mm-hmm. I really, th- I'm like, okay, I got all weekend for this one. You know, and it, was, <laughs> it was so, it was nothing. It was so easy. And like the guy at the Home Depot, hey, you ever done it before? I'm like, no, he's like, oh. All right, here's what you got to do. And he, he, you know, he made me this long list of stuff and make sure that the seal, the wax seal doesn't get damaged when you're putting it down. It's real easy to damage. I'm like, no, it's not. You yeah. know, like it was really straightforward. And I, I, that first house that I had, which had been, it was this 1940s, this was in Florida. This is 1940s little shoebox of a, of a house that had been probably let go for a long time. And then uh, a, a kind of like a flipper had come in and done just what needed to be done to be able to make it safe to live in uh-huh. and, you know, and, and, and sell it. And, you know, I didn't know. We didn't know anything. It was the first house I'd ever bought. It was, you know, my wife thought it was cute and I thought it was affordable. And that was basically our criteria, you know. Right. Cute and affordable. Cute, affordable, close to where I worked. So we said, all right, we'll do. And I, you know, it. It needed, it wound up needing so much, but it was such a great way for me to learn how to do anything I didn't know how to do because really it couldn't get worse. You know, like the things that weren't there or that were broken or that were done wrong, they were so badly done 
that it, like any experimental repair I did, it's not like, well, it was working fine and you messed it up. Like, no, like so much was wrong with it. <laughs> the, it when it rained, the, it would it, rain. I was getting in in two different at both the roof line and the floor line in okay. the whole back of the house. And, uh, and, and I mean, the, the house was off level. We had, that was something we did have to hire like a crew to raise the house, like four inches in the back corner. And yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, no. And I mean, there were so many, so many problems with it, the, redoing all the countertops and all the cabinets ourselves and, you know, uh, basic electrical work, fixing floors, fixing doors, fixing air conditioning things and flushing lines and all the stuff that you kind of just learn about when you have an older home, you get to the point where like, it doesn't, it doesn't really scare you anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, but there were certain things like electrical and plumbing. Like there was one time I got home from work and I heard, I heard the water running and I went around and I like called my wife. This is back before we could text. I called my wife. I'm like, did you, are you doing, did you leave the water on outside or something? We couldn't figure it out. And so I'm standing there in the kitchen and I realized that it's coming from under the, house it's under the kitchen somewhere it's coming from inside the house from inside the house and this is one of those homes that there it was um it was a wooden home and it was up on up on blocks like a lot of things in florida it's you know is raised up so there was like a like a two-foot crawl space under the house and i could hear water under there and so you know i i didn't really like going that was one thing i didn't mind the attic but i didn't like going under the house a lot of dead things under there. Yeah. Ugh. yeah so scorpions I, and bugs. Yeah. So I snakes. So I went, uh, I kind of went close enough to it that I could see that there was some kind of leak under there. Real small, like pinhole little leak. But I didn't, I didn't really do much exploration. So I called. Yeah. And of course it's like Friday at 6 PM. So I call the plumber out and, uh, and he's like, well, you know, that's going to be an extra charge because it's, you know, it's technically it's weekend hours and this is emergency service. I'm like, what, what am I going to do? Like, we got to get it fixed. I'm not going to let water run all weekend long till Monday. So he comes out and I hear him bumping around under there. And then I can, you know, this is three hours later and I can hear that the water sounds like it stopped, but the guy's not coming back in or anything. And I look out the window and he's just sitting in his truck smoking. And I'm like, so I walk down. And I'm like, "Hey, how'd it go?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, it's all done." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, cool." What was it? he's like, "Oh, it's just a little pinhole leak. Fix that for you." I'm like, okay. And I, I think the bill was 400 bucks for that. You know, and that's when I realized, like, I've got to learn how to do all this stuff because it's just outrageous. It's a racket, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, so many things, right? I mean, it, that's what I'm going through with my GMC RV. Well, is it yeah. still in, in that, at that lot? Yeah, yeah, it's still down there. But, but, but even if that repair is done, it's all the little, it's all the little stuff, the, the little cracks and the trim and the rubber and all that stuff that if you, if you have to pay somebody to do it, you're going to be underwater on the thing in a, in no time and none of the work is hard. It's just, you have to wake up one morning and roll up your sleeves and say, today's the day I'm going to take the windows out of the RV. (laughs) And as soon as I do that, the clock is ticking. I've got to get those seals 
replaced and back in. And it, it just requires that I, that I, that I do it, you know, and, yeah. and, and the doing of it means that there's inevitably going to be problems. So once I'm going, I can't stop. And none of it's, it's not hard to add caulk to things. It's not hard to do stuff, but, but you have to, you know, you have to double down on it. Right. And, and it's gonna, it's gonna screw up and you're going to encounter something that you don't know how to fix, but you can't just wipe your hands on a rag and go in and watch TV. Right. Uh, you have to like, okay, here we go. So how do I do this again? And, and, uh, and with the GMC RV, it's not just one thing. It's, it's dozens of those small little things. And of course, as soon as you take the screwdriver out and take a panel down, you're going to discover that birds have been living in there or <laughs> there's a, there's a treasure map in there or so it's always going to be one more thing that you discover that you're like, Oh, come on, give me a break here. And you just have to power through all those things and not ever let it get you down, not turn your, you know, not tear your thing apart. And, and then it turns into just a shell out there that, uh, that's an albatross until you finally get it towed. You have to just do it. And that's, um, more than even the cost of repairing the GMC that the, that's the thing that I need to factor in to any decision I make is I have a lot of support from my friends and family, but what I need to do is, is get back in that mindset that I once upon a time was in mm. where I was willing to, wire my own loft right um and that you know that was no small job and i was living in a space with no electricity while i did it uh and that is just the i have to reacquaint myself with that attitude because right now i'm living in a world where it's like oh yeah call a guy right not because i can't do it but because you know just easier to pay some guy four hundred dollars to do it. But you know the yeah. way things are today. I mean, as we, I know plenty of people our our age, men, men, strong men in our forties, strong, strong. But I mean, I I think there's a big, big difference, certainly between like my my family would they were they were city dwellers, right? So like going back even to my grandfather, like he was, he was a metallurgist. He worked for the, for the government doing like anti-ballistic like armor for tanks and stuff like that. But like he worked in labs, you know, like he was, he was a metallurgist. He was a full on, full on scientist. And he was not like a handyman, but my uncle, uh, whom my, you know, my aunt married that uh, my uncle was, he was French. He was French from France. He was from a town or a city or a, a wherever and however they split up France called France French. France. He, it was called Brest. That's where he came from. Brest. So already it's pretty cool. And he was uh, a, an electrical engineer. However, he was absolutely 100% a, 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 a handyman, do-it-yourselfer kind of person. I don't think in the in in my whole life, he has ever hired someone to do something 
that that didn't require you know like a cement mixer level kind of project yeah. like everything that he did he absolutely did it himself and he you know being french his car had to be a peugeot and but of course of goals and he, this this peugeot that he had it i think from the day he got it started to have problems but these were all things that he would he would fix them himself frequently with parts that he would just find or make or make and so like one thing i remember there was one time uh, he was he was working out you know and he always working out on the car in front of his house and they lived just down the street from us so i you know having very little else to do on the weekends i would walk over there and and he'd be sitting there you know whistling in a very in the most french way he the only thing lacking was his he didn't wear a beret everything else couldn't be more french about him and he'd be drinking beer or wine and working on his his Peugeot. And there, I remember one time he was installing like a little um, two position Radio Shack switch with wires running down along the dashboard and down to like I guess like in into the door. And he had fixed this little switch on the door. And I said, uh, "What what's this switch for?" And apparently, uh there was some kind of fuel pump that had failed or something had gone wrong with it. And so instead of just getting the Peugeot fuel pump, which was several hundred dollars, he went to Radio Shack and did some, uh, got some other kind of pump that was controlled with a separate little battery through the switch. So when he wanted to start the car or run the car, he had to flip that switch and then he could start the car because then fuel would start flowing. You know, like that was his, that was his approach. Like everything was just fixable when it, when it came time to get a, a PC, an IBM PC, of course he wouldn't get it from IBM. He was an electrical engineer. He would source the parts. And this is before you could source parts yourself, you know, but he did it like he would build his own computer and it, it worked. And I, that really taught me something because, you know, it, it showed me that the world is a place that you, if, if you can understand something, then you, you have, an advantage there you can you can figure it out and you can make it work but now we can't even upgrade the hard drives in our computers anymore you know that we're we're seal everything's sealed you know sealed and un, untouchable and 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 it leads to this philosophy not that things are disposable but this feeling for me at least of being like like stuck you know like you can't get your car and be like oh you know what like i want to soup up the car a little bit i want to add some custom mufflers on there and i would the air intake that that it's stock air intake are you nuts let's you know let's put something on here and it those days are long gone you know yeah in the interest of efficiency we've made everybody a technician without anyone being a mechanic right. i mean my my mom is my mom is somebody that understands signal flow i mean she under she understands that uh, she's confident that if human beings made it, that she can also you know, unlock the code and figure out how to build it. Uh, the, the thing that amazes me the most is that at some point in my life, I took on masonry and built a, I, the, there was a garage behind an old funeral parlor. And my, and a, a friend of mine had purchased the funeral parlor 
at a time when you could buy a giant old funeral parlor for $30,000. And he turned it into a theater space. And there were two garages behind it that were garages built to house the hearses. And he turned one over to me to turn into a band practice space. And we knew that we couldn't just put a couple of mattresses over the garage door. And so, I mean, again, this is, this is something that it's very hard for me to imagine and remember, but my bandmates and I took the garage door out, went to (laughs) home Depot, bought, you know, measured it three times, bought the necessary cinder blocks and cement and proceeded to build a cement wall that enclosed because it was a cinder block building um, enclosed it completely. And it was on a slope. So we had to, we had to plumb this cinder block wall and we just did it. We, we, we built this wall that again survives and made that a usable practice space. And the building is still used as a practice space 20 years later. Wow. And, you know, the idea now that I would, so anyway, so then I had masonry skills and my mom, anytime we need to do some minor masonry, she just trots me out and says, <laughs> get busy. You've got to fix this. Uh, you got to fix this fireplace or you got to fix this, you know, crack in the floor. Um, but like, since I bought my house, I've been planning and replanning to build a path. Initially it was a stone path and then it was going to be a crushed gravel path. And then it was going to be a cement path and then back to a stone path. I've been planning this thing for seven years. And in that seven years, I've been walking up to my house in dirt and in the winter mud and I've just never done the thing that I used to do, which is, you know, go to the store, figure out what I need, buy it, have it delivered and begin work on it. Yeah. And as a consequence, I've got this dirt path and, and, uh, obviously it adds a rusticity to my house, but, but it's also frust- I I'm frustrated every day by the fact that I haven't just gone ahead. And, um, yeah, I think back to when I was in my twenties and I was just like, Oh, we need an airplane. Well, let's build an airplane. (laughs) And, uh, and honestly, I don't know where I got that. I mean, I got it from my mom. She's a, she is someone who is kind of undaunted. And, you know, in my life, a lot of the handiest people I've known have been women. My dad had a, uh, had a carpenter that he used for, every kind of carpentry that he needed done. And he called her lady carpenter. Uh, I never (laughs) knew her name. She was just lady carpenter and she would come in and do all the carpentry that he needed. And he talked about her all the time. Lady carpenter, lady carpenter's coming. Um, I mean, my dad was obviously a born in 1921 and B this was happening in the seventies. I think the (laughs) seventies and eighties where, I guess in my dad's estimation, it was still novel that the carpenter was a lady, right? Lady carpenter. I never, I never heard her name anyway. So yeah, I miss, uh, I miss that can do spirit, but now I have purchased this GMC RV and there's just no way I could pay to have all the work done. The, it would cost 
tens of thousands of dollars, not because any of it's difficult, but it's just time consuming. And right. And the, uh, you know, mechanics get paid a hundred dollars an hour, whether they are rebuilding your motor or whether they are adding some caulk mm-hmm. to your windows. Yeah. And so you just have to, you just have to bite it off, bite it off. Woo. Bite it off. <laughs> That's now, speaking of, of bite it off, Dan. <laughs> yeah. I still have a lot of packages here. Yes. I don't I don't know how I don't know how well received our our Christmas morning episode was. I think it was very well received. Well, that's good. I mean, I don't want to just make every show about opening the mail. Well, let's open I some. Like, I mean, I'm I want know, you to. I feel somewhat obligated. All these people sent me these wonderful things and Okay, well, I'll just I'll get a few packages. Yeah, get a few. Get a few good ones. Are there any that look sort of like suspicious or or are they all sort of just repurposed amazon boxes okay let's see here you're talking about suspicious something looks like maybe it came from i'll know you know like it's like a our like some piece of arcana or something i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna take the suspicious looking ones here um okay that one looks pretty suspicious um oh that one's strangely heavy for how small it is. Okay. I've got some suspicious ones now. All right. Here we go. I'm going to take these over to the desk because we're no longer, we're no longer in the realm where we're opening large boxes. We're down to, we're down to small boxes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's see. I'm going to open this one that is small, but heavy. Uh, let's see what I can what, what I can find out about it. It's from Warrington, Virginia. Warrington, Virginia. And I have uh, I've been all over Virginia, but I can't think that I have ever been to Warrington. But there are a lot of tons in Virginia. It's fairly. Hmm. Wow, this one smells. There like are, what? There are powerful smells coming out of this, like essential oils. Woo! Holy cat! <laughs> What is it? I'm not sure. It smells a little bit like popcorn, a little bit like soap, but also, I mean, the the strongest smells are of popcorn and soap. Okay. But it's very, very powerful. Okay, here we go. Oh, this is a long letter. It's from Joel Hausman. Oh, Joel Hausman. In Virginia, yeah, long time uh, five by five listener. Joel ha- uh, Hausman says, "Dear John, after hearing your solicitation for listeners to send you quote crafty things to seek your opinion of, I mentioned it to my wife Stephanie, and that's Stephanie with two F's, not PH. Uh, five years ago, she started a side business while stuck at home for three months, recovering from brain surgery. Wow, wow, wow. and immense boredom." She makes handmade bar soap and other products, many of which are either beer or wine soap. Over the course of the last... I'm looking at her website right now. Beer or wine soap. Over the course of the last five years, she has slowly grown this into a profitable business through a combination of farmer's markets, craft shows, online sales, and wholesale accounts. She is now selling her soaps in various craft breweries and local vineyards, so beer and wine soap as well as making other things such as lip balm for big breweries like Dogfish Head, which is, Joel is uh, 
I'm grateful that he points out, is a big East Coast craft brewery, uh, which they sell online. Enclosed in this package are an assortment of bar soaps for your perusal. Three beer soaps, two wine soaps, and one normal soaps. (laughs) Each of the bars selected are some of our most popular selling bars. Okay. uh, Skipping ahead. Uh, Oh, all right. Oh, the Hilton in Crystal City, he references, which is where I had my Hilton in Crystal City adventure. Uh-huh. Uh, all, the, all this stuff, all the beer and wine sourced from Virginia. 98% of the ingredients in her soap are all natural in that they're mostly cooking grade oils and liquids that you could eat or drink. Uh, no detergents. So beer and wine soaps. It's our second page to this letter. Oh, boy. There's one called Southern Gent. <laughs> uh, dark Wood Flip. Pumpkin Lager. Champagne. Okay. While you may not like all of this, our hope is that there will be a few here that you enjoy. Wife is very excited to hear your feedback, even if it's just a quick email back. Uh, she doesn't want me to talk about it on the show or anything, but it's too late for that. Uh, oh, he says, we've met before at the Birchmere. We spoke after a show I did. And, oh, I remember this uh, person. We bumped into each other on the street in Alexandria. Um, and he, I was uh, just out walking around, and he, and I tweeted that I was walking around, and then he bopped down. Nice. And uh, we saw each other. Uh, we're also mutual friends with Marco and Tiffany Arment. Mm-hmm. All right, so. The reason that this smelled so powerfully and powerfully like popcorn and soap is that there are multiple soaps and all of their different smells are intermingling, Mm -hmm. creating a crazy pastiche. All right. So pumpkin lager. Let me smell that. That is one that smells very powerful. And I do smell some pumpkin in it. Oh, the Pinot. Oh, it's very floral and nice. I think I will like the pino, pino, pino. Oh yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> set that one aside. All right, let's see. Alexandria beer. That's the one that smells a little bit like popcorn. It's got a buttery smell. Mm. Dark wood flip. Mm, that's kind of musky. Yeah, I, I, I smell a little bit of little little woody musk in that. I like that. Southern Gent, that has an Argyle label on it. Mm-hmm. 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 That does smell like a man. And now champagne, champagne. <laughs> oh, that's very. Mm-hmm. I So I would say my two favorites were Pinot and Champagne, the two wine ones. <laughs> Darkwood Flip and Southern Gent are, are muskier male scents. And then Alexandria beer and pumpkin lager have very complicated smells that my um, my sensitive smell palate will it'll take a little uh, take some time to get adjusted to those. Yeah, you know, typically I like a floral scent over a uh, essential oils like musky scent. I would not have guessed that about you. I was thinking you were more the sort of the wood woodsman. Yeah, no, I've never uh back in the back in the old days there was an essential oils store on Broadway. Uh 
there was a time, I guess, when we were all wearing essential oils and making little tinctures and and perfumes for ourselves. Right. It's hard for me to remember what the logic was there, but it was a thing. And because I was living in the world that I was living in, I always knew the person working at the essential oils place. <laughs> it was either a girl I was dating or it was the gay best friend of the girl I was dating. And so I spent so much time in the essential oils store, which seems crazy to me now. Um, but during that time, I realized that sandalwoody, patchouli scents um, were a real problem for me. And anytime one of my lady friends would come, would show up with an earthy scent, I would, I would be repulsed. But like floral, light floral, it's like a Pavlovian response almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Little little floral scents or citrusy scents, I always I always liked. So it was just a natural a natural preference. That's why there are lots and lots of different kinds of essential oils. Um, so that those of us whoa hello, dropping soap all over the place. Uh, those of us who like the um, the gentler scents. I mean, I think there are probably a lot of people that really like a musky scent because it communicates uh, animalia to mm. them. Like, oh, rawr. Right. But I'm, a, you know, I'm a civilized Louis Cator's kind Ooh. of guy. Okay, the next one is a, uh, it's an envelope. It says international standard and Par Avignon, which means that this has come from overseas. Right. Uh, it's written all over it. Do not bend. And then my name, my name is written in a kind of ye old English calligraphy. Ooh, see, I was really hoping you'd get something like that. Yeah, ye olde English. Um, not it, he didn't fully commit to it, but the J, the R, and the K, and a little bit the H and the N are sort of are sort of uh, Tudorified. And then let's see what else I can tell you about this. Oh, it's from Linus Bowman in London, England. Hmm. All right, here we go. It has a custom stamp on it. It's obviously been inspected by, uh, by the customs people. All right. And it's very, it's sort of rigid. Hence the do not bend. All right, here we go. All right. It's full of what looks like stationary. Oh, and it is stationary. Oh, Betty, Betty Page stationary? No, it is clearly artisanal. Art- <laughs> These are uh, these are greeting cards. Okay, um, cards that you would use for your friends, and they are written in very, very, very florid type, uh, and they're be- they're beautiful, like heavy, heavy cardstock with matching envelopes. His company is called Calligraphuck. 
Really? Fuck, uh, spelt P-H-U-C-K because, because it's calligraph uck, <laughs> right? Calligraph fuck. Okay. Uh, and the, so here are the cards. They're beautiful, beautiful cards with little clipped corners and a very nice envelope. The first one, and this, I, I can't tell you how in ornate, ornately, uh, these fonts are uh, sort of interact with one another. This one says, happy birthday, fuck face. <laughs> this one says, thank you for your help, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, this one is in a pink font. It says, I fucking love you. This one says, Merry fucking Christmas. It looks like he sells on his site a whole assortment of these. (laughs) This is nice. Congratu-fucking-lations. (laughs) And then another Merry fucking Christmas in a different color. Uh, And then there's another, this this is a, uh, there's a larger thing in here that's kind of wrapped in plastic attached to a board. So that it didn't bend. It's going to be a little bit tougher to open here. It's actually saran wrapped to this board, Hmm. which I admire. Artful use of saran wrap. Okay. Opening the saran. Oh, yes. There's a a, a notebook. And on the front of it, it says fucking genius. (laughs) And then two, wow, large sort of posters. This is a beautiful poster in gold. And it it says, bitch, on it. These are very dirty. I hope there are no kids listening to this. No, no, no children listened. Oh, oh, this is wrapping paper. Oh. Wrapping paper that says Merry fucking Christmas and bitch. And then suitable for framing a uh, a sign that says home sweet fucking home. <laughs> and a final journal that says getting shit done. No, oh, I like that. So all of these are very profane, but also beautiful and very wonderful. And what an unusual... What an unusual artisanal pursuit. What a, what a, what an interesting craft and an unusual, and an unusual craft. I feel like in England, in England, this may, (laughs) these may, you know, they, they have much more casual swearing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. In England, because there's not so much of that Presbyterian, moralizing right so i think in england maybe getting a card that says merry fucking christmas might be something that you would send your grandmother (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that's how that's how desensitized they are yeah but here in the united states i would have to pick i would have to pick my uh the recipient of that how many cards in there were were there in their total one two three four five six cards and then the wrapping paper. Oh, wait, there's a letter. A letter on very nice stationery. And it the letter says, you magnificent bastard. Mm. 
Hi, John. Thank you for the hours of entertaining conversation and disruptive thought technologies. You've allowed us to eavesdrop, and he he hyphenated eavesdrop, mm. which is which is very unusual. I feel like is that an is that a a UK coinage or is that just his own particular um, affectation? But I like it. You've allowed us to eavesdrop on. Please enjoy the enclosed vulgar stationery as a token of my personal thanks. Best wishes, Linus. Uh, that is lovely. That's wonderful. Do you think you'll you'll have people you can send those to? Yes, yeah. I definitely have have a lot of friends uh, that that would be appropriate for, and a couple of them are even ones who would appreciate a personalized letter. So I'll I'll use those. You know, like every once in a while, one of my dumb friends gets married, and, right? Uh, you know, and I have to say something about it. I can't just ignore it. So I'll say, "Merry fucking Christmas" to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was, you, you were correct to say, "Why don't you open some of the stranger-looking packages?" Because that one—that's a weird really, one. All right. Really panned out. What are you using to open them? Still the shears? Yeah, the shears. Okay, now this one is a is a box, and you know some of what makes these look unusual is that they are not USA boxes. You know, we we get used to our USA boxes. Are they just what are they a little a little smaller or something? Yeah, they just have different. They just look they just look different. They look weird. People sending me weird boxes. All right, this box also from overseas. And it has a little stamp on it that says ID recorded. So that gives me pause. Uh, This one comes from Australia. An Australian box that is pretty well taped with black duct tape. Really? Yeah. That's the good kind. It is the good kind. I use it myself. But I'm under clear how to open this box it's so well sealed with duct tape that i cannot tell where the door is okay i'm just gonna rip this box i'm not gonna keep this weird australian shipping box okay opening it i find a letter here we go the letter is on very nice stock uh there is a little red factory building at the top. That is the logo. And underneath a hand, uh, like a hand designed typeface. Gregory McKay cartoonist. And it's a wonderful logo. I hope that there's a business card that has that. And then I'm not sure whether he designed this. Is it a font or a typeface? Oh, you're going to try and trick me into answering wrong. I think uh, uh, <clears throat> I get this confused. Uh, one of them is the set of characters, regardless of the size that, in other words, the family. And right. then I, I, and then the other one is the implementation of that at a certain size on the screen. So I'm, I'm going to say that a typeface is the family of the different characters and letters and numbers and that the font is the particular, and I'm not even cheating, is the particular implementation of that. Like, oh, the font is Times New Roman 12-point bold. 
I honestly cannot say whether this is a hand done font that he then uses in a typewritten letter or whether he has, he has such meticulous handwriting that he has actually sat and written this by hand with a pen and he must have used a straight edge or he is a robot or a <laughs> UFO. He might be a UFO. Yeah. Uh, but he has written a very, very elegant formal letter. And I think with an Australian style. So he puts the date at the top and then my, my name and address and then his name and address. He lives in Melbourne. Uh, oh, wait. Uh, this is unclear to me. Does he live in Victoria, Australia or Melbourne, Australia? I don't know how they do their addresses there. <laughs> anyway, dear Mr. Roderick, I enjoy the podcasts you appear on, and I am responding to your call out of sorts for listener concoctions. Enclosed are two books I have made. One is a kid's comic called Anders and the Comet. It came out this year, and I'm currently working on the next one in the series. The other book is a zine I made. It features comics I have produced for the comics website part of vice.com. Being a cartoonist, I spend many hours drawing. I appreciate the lengthy and intelligent podcast that you and your friends make. What comics do you enjoy reading? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the comics that my friends enjoy, Greg, Gregory, are superhero comics of some sort or another. Merlin and Hodgman and all these guys, they read uh, these superhero comics, which, yeah. uh, and is that true of you also, Dan? Yeah, for sure. And uh, superhero comics are not a thing that I enjoy. Um, I was a, I came up during the era of alternative comics, which were a lot of them um, comics that just sort of narrated regular people, regular people's lives, real stuff and American splendor and, the R crumb stuff. And that all led to this sort of generation of, of young cartoonists that did sort of cinema verite comics like hate comics and a dirty plot comics. Um, and so I have a pretty extensive collection that I never talk about of that style of, of stuff. Um, I can imagine you, you one day you'll be around up around in your attic or something and you'll find half a dozen long boxes with like comics from like 30 years ago. Yeah. 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 And that, I, you know, I'm not sure if that stuff is all still in print. Um, but I, I bought it, I bought it, uh, pretty carefully and enthusiastically during the nineties and I have a lot of, a lot of wonderful stuff that I, that was very, it had, it affected me very strongly when I was young because it felt like, you know, it felt like the movie slacker, except it was comic books. And I loved the different styles of people's drawing. Yeah. And I loved the storytelling that happened. It, it all sort of reflected real life. And I, 
I think that that's probably still a style that that certain people use, but there's such a preponderance of fantasy and magic powers, mutants, zombies, this whole universe yeah. of the fantastical that never grabbed me, even when I was a kid. I mean, I, in the 1970s, Spider-Man was very sarcastic. Oh, yeah. And when he wasn't doing superhero stuff, he was really sort of just a teenager who was, uh, who had a girlfriend and was being pretty flippant. There was a lot of jokes. There were a lot of jokes. And so I liked those Spider-Man comics, but honestly, I would, I would pick Archie comics over any Batman really? or, or uh, X-Men I would read Archie comics all day long because Archie comics at least were dealing with real teenage problems. Even no matter how stylized and dumb they were as opposed to wading through the allegory of Wolverine's complicated (laughs) relationship to his adamantian inner uh, in, in skeleton Mm -hmm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. like all the, whatever teenage problems were being explored in um, the narrate narrative of the silver surfer who was <laughs> completely impenetrable to me, the silver surfer would talk, would just talk in this weird comic book, highfalutin language about psychedelic topics as he surfed through the universe on his magic surfboard. And I was mm-hmm. just like, whatever, man, <laughs> Uh, because I guess my main comic book was always Mad Magazine. Yeah, well, I loved Mad Magazine. I loved Cracked. You remember Cracked Magazine? Yeah, I didn't like Cracked as much. I Mad felt was like it was. King. I felt like Cracked was a subpar Mad. I would read it if there was nothing else. Yeah, but I, and I went from Mad Magazine to National Lampoon. And yep, so, me too. But but the uh, yeah the superhero stuff. I remember you know you'd go to birthday parties in the early seventies and sometimes the the um, lovely parting gift would be a little, you know, a couple of comic books that you'd be given kind of as a consolation prize for it not being your birthday. And they were always some kind of green lantern or something. And I was just like, I don't want to, I don't care about the gremlin fighting the dog face. (laughs) Boring. So anyway, I'm looking here at whoops, looking here at these comics Francis Bear short stories, a couple of copies, and Anders and the Comet, which is a kid's book, which my kid will love. Um, and I am I I picture these as being they they seem to have they seem to have little dog and bear and and you know animals, but they look like they're stories rather than. I don't, the, the animals do not appear to have magic powers. And some of the, some of the comics that I loved, the alternative comics actually had, you know, like Maki's for instance, was a comic strip that had a, that had drinky crow and his, and his monkey friend, <laughs> but they were, uh, they were on adventures on the high seas, right? I mean, they were their their only magic power was to either shoot themselves in the head and then reappear the next day or drink themselves to death. I mean, they routinely died, but they died of alcoholism and suicide. 
um, and occasionally murder, which again seemed realer to me than uh, being able to shoot laser beams out of your eyes if you didn't have your sunglasses on. I remember a cartoon, The Drinky Crow. Cartoon. That would be it. Drinky Crow. Yeah. Drinky Crow cartoon. Uh, That was... The Drinky Crow cartoon was... Yeah. um, Like mid-2000s? Yeah, they went through a phase there where they were trying to turn daily comic strips into into cartoons on on the Cartoon Network. The show centers around Drinky Crow, an often drunk crow, and Uncle Gabby, described as a drunken Irish monkey... Yeah, that's right. It has a 19th century nautical setting where the main characters are constantly at war with the French, who are mostly alligators. Right. It is characterized by graphic violence and surreal humor, rated TVMAV. Correct. For, and for graphic violence. To- Tony Millionaire, the artist of Drinky Crow, has actually illustrated me two different times for two different magazine oh. articles. And I, when I was flush with cash, once bought a Tony Millionaire, the original art of a Tony Millionaire strip which is framed and hanging next to my fireplace in my home. So again, you know, like Ellen Forney was a friend of mine. I, I was friends with a lot of these cartoonists and, uh, and uh, like Ed Brubaker. Uh, oh, cool. When Ed went on to do superhero stuff, yeah, I think, yeah. but he got his start doing cinema verite uh, cartoons. And there were, you know, Julie Doucette was a, was a comic strip artist that I fell in love with. And I've never seen her in real life. I've only seen her, her, her drawings of herself. Um, but I was just madly in love with her. And she is a Quebecois and probably speaks with a fantastic French accent, but I've never seen her in person. But I was so into her comic that for a while, I'd just sit and dream about Julie Doucette. All right. Uh, now this package, very suspiciously. It is wrapped in um, in a map, but the map is aviation. It's an it's a it's an a flyers map, an aviation uh, like navigation map. And I should say that when I first went to college, I decorated my room. I basically wallpapered my room with this exact style of map. Really? Kind of, it's a very specific sort of aviation map that has a detailed, uh, a detailed map of the ground as you would see it from the air. But it also has every radio antenna, the altitudes of all the, the uh, physical, you know, all the, the mountains and so forth, every little lake. And then every airport in the area is represented by not just the airport itself, but the call signs, the, the frequencies of the transponders, they're wonderful maps. And I decorated my whole, the room of my home or my, my dorm room with them. And when my roommate first arrived, he later said that he was like, who is this geography nerd? And why did I get roomed with him? (laughs) Uh, anyway, this map is of the Jacksonville, Florida region. Mm. It's a fairly recent map, but it was, uh, I can tell from the outside, it was no longer uh, used for navigation after August 2015 because these maps are meant to be very current. 
And it comes from, unsurprisingly, Miami, Florida, from Carlos Alberto. This is a very suspicious package. <laughs> right? And he even courteously wrote, open here. Oh, I wonder why. With an arrow. I know. That makes it even more suspicious. Right? Here we go. Uh, unfortunately, this box got a little munched in transit because it's not a not a sturdy box all right here we go it's a box from staples copy and print and opening it oh it's a selection of aviation maps oh let me run them down for you here Um, okay uh there's another one from jacksonville wait there's another one from jacksonville they're all from jacksonville here's miami sectional um, this one is Miami. Another one of Miami. So there's a there's there there are a lot of Miami and Jacksonville. These are Florida maps. And here is a business card from the Flying Academy of Miami. Mm. Carlos, I believe. He has his name and address here, and I believe he is a flying instructor. Here we go. Hi, we met at John Hodgman's show in Portland. I am a flight instructor in Miami, Florida. There you go. I want to give you an hour of free flight instruction next time you're here. Wow. Attaches my card and an old and old aeronautical maps. I'm sure you will find a use for Carlos, Carlos, the CFI. Carlos has offered me one hour of free flight instruction. What do you think about them apples? It's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. I see you more as a a chopper pilot, mm. just based on your demeanor, than like commercial airline. Uh, yeah. I don't think I would be a very good airline pilot, although I think I would. I mean, I have the, the uh, jaunty jocularity of an airline pilot but i feel like the kind of ins and outs of flying people around i would i would be like what else is going on I, after I a see while you more in a pair of like khaki trousers and a hawaiian shirt with a pair of like mirrored sunglasses on and you might sleep in the in the chopper from time to time you know well, I, I love that idea, but I think that my model of it is the Alaska bush pilot. Oh. I, grew, you know, I grew up with bush pilots. Right. And Isn't that bush what Maggie pilots, did in, in Northern Exposure? Yes. Yeah. Uh, bush pilots are very, very exciting creatures, and they are full of uh, reckless daring do. And I And they wear mirrored sunglasses and even Hawaiian shirts. Okay. A lot of them wear shoulder holsters with pistols in them. Um, like it's a real, I, maybe not so much anymore, but some guys used to. Uh, and particularly, I guess, if you're flying way into the bush, you yeah. just carry a pistol there yeah, in case you well. land on a bear. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like I would fly a de Havilland Beaver or a Piper Super Club or some kind of you know, Cessna 180, maybe on floats. Oh, I see that. Yeah. And I'd be up there just sort of taking people around and 
maybe chomping on an unlit cheroot. Yes, I can totally see that. Yeah. So, you know, my one hour of flight instruction, I mean, depending on the, uh, a lot of guys down in Miami are flying low wind, the uh, low wing planes like Comanches, little pipers, which is a kind of what I think of as a East, East coast or Southeast style plane. Uh, because they're fast and they're cool looking. Uh, those of us in the in the Northwest all fly high wing planes because they're better for landing on rough airstrips, uh, and you have a lot better visibility looking down. But the low wing planes are faster and more zippy, and I think you have a lot better visibility looking up. Obviously, there's not a wing in your way. Uh, so I think of East Coast. And Southeast Plains as, you know, being kind of like little pipers and little right. low wing zip zippers. What would, I mean, you're, you're going to take them up on this, right? Oh, hell yes. Yeah, you've got to. So I've got a couple of invitations to go to Florida now. I've got this flight instruction in Miami and I have some friends in Orlando that invited me to come visit them. Mm-hmm. It's a long way across America. Oh, tell me about it. I used to live down in Orlando and I lived in South Florida before that, but. Going from Orlando to anywhere, you know, like you go to, I remember going to like RailsCon back in the day, which was always in Portland and just getting from Orlando to Portland. It's just, oh, what the hell is RailsCon? RailsConf. Back in the, the old days, early days, it's the Ruby on Rails conference, which is back in like the mid 2000s. I think uh, is maybe late 2000s is when this started picking up. I'd need to look it up. It feels like it's a million years ago. But it used to, this used to be where like the Rails nerds would go and talk and re- listen to other people talk. Talk about Rails? Ruby on Rails, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I spoke there, there two or three years. There are depths to you, Dan Benjamin, that you can't plumb simple podcast yeah i guess well so uh so those are the packages i've opened that's good for this week yeah how many are left and are you are are more still coming in or do we need to reiterate the the address to send them to no there are some coming in uh still well let me let me say this anyway if you if you want to send john a package or a letter i recommend that you uh, you make it interesting looking as a box. Mm-hmm. The more interesting looking, the more chance I think we'll, he'll get to it sooner. That's right. And uh, the address is 815 Seattle Boulevard. Office, office 332. 332 Seattle. 98134. Got it. I got it here. I got it printed out. Oh, you do? Good, oh, good. Yeah. Miss, and well, I would address it me. to Mr. John Roderick, and I would make sure to spell Roderick correctly. Oh, that's right. Don't put two Ds in no, there. No, no, no. I'm surprised you even opened that one. That would have gone right in the trash. If they said, well, it to you know, yeah, I probably should have thrown it away, but I, but I felt like, you know, I hadn't specified at that point that you spell my name right. Although I shouldn't have, you're to. a celebrity. People have yeah. to know how to spell that. Yeah. And it's not even that common, but here's why I guess I didn't say anything. It is that my local radio station here, KEXP. You've, you've performed live on KEXP. Many times. I'm a big supporter of theirs. We are all friends. I'm friends with all the staff. We're all good friends, and they've done immeasurable work for the long winters. And they know me, and they know who I am. But somewhere along the way, 
during one of their pledge drives, I gave him 50 bucks or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the person who took down my information got it wrong and put two D's in there. So KEXP will send me things periodically that are addressed to me properly, but all of their fundraising material comes to me with two D's. Their whole, you know, every time they solicit money. And so if a thing comes in the mail with two D's, I just throw it in the garbage. It's the number one thing I do. But in this case, I felt like this person who sent that to me deserved better. Deserved better than having their package thrown immediately in the garbage. You're a nice, yeah. you're a nice person. I know you don't think so. <laughs> you're, well, you're a very kind and generous person. Well, that's good of you to say. Yeah. If I put that into the show notes, show notes can be found. 5x5.tv slash roadwork slash 16. You can see some of the other things that you mentioned in the show notes there, as well as John Roderick performing Scared Straight live on KEXP. Oh, how nice. I picked that one over Cinnamon because I feel like both were good, but I, I, I just think that one's pretty special. Yeah, well, that's a good little plug for KEXP, too. Yeah. Another another opportunity for them to boost their listenership. Right. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs>